to the audible presented by trader joe's i'm bruce feldman joined as always by my colleague Stuart mandel a busy show today Stu. we're in the middle of the final four run and we have a really good guest for our audience ucla ad martin jarman we're going to get into not only the bruins shocking run as an 11 seed to the final four but also a lot of other issues that are that are really relevant for Pac-12 football and really college athletics in general. Um, but before we get to Martin and before we get into the mailbag after that, there's some interesting news that came out of the Supreme Court uh, earlier this week. And if anybody was if, if you follow anybody who follows college football, you probably saw it on your timeline. So, Stu. Um, we saw a lot of very conservative Supreme Court justices, especially really pushing hard and coming after the NCA. Um, as you as you watch this, because I know you followed it as well. Um, what do our listeners really need to know? Yeah, I mean, it's such a complicated issue to try to boil down. But basically, this moment, this the NCA going before the Supreme Court for the first time in 37 years was the culmination of something that's a movement that's been in the works for over a decade, right? Everybody, I think, is familiar with the Ed O'Bannon case. That was the first big one where basically amateurism was on trial. And the the judge in that case, and, and I covered that case at the time, ruled it against the NCA, ruled the NCA was in violation of antitrust law by capping um, what well, at the time was actually something pretty minor, the, the um, cost of attendance, which went into effect. Then this suit uh, called the Alston suit over a player from West Virginia was also fairly narrow. It was about whether they it's illegal to cap um, educational expenses beyond a scholarship, like whether a school should be able to buy a football player, a laptop and things like that up to a certain amount. So on the one hand, it's like kind of minutia, but the NCAA wanted to take it to the Supreme Court because at the end of the day, they want somebody. <laughs> Nobody has to this point at the lower level say, that amateurism, the fact that the athletes don't get paid is so essential to, to, NC, to, to what college sports is that it would be, you know, be damaging to their business if this is allowed. You know, if, if this is true, they want them to reverse it and say, you, this is not an antitrust violation. Um, you can only, you know, just because the, the, so each justice gets to ask both the plaintiffs and the defendants questions for five minutes. And doesn't necessarily mean like the tone of their questions is how they're going to rule. But I thought it was pretty, pretty telling that, like you said, like the whole spectrum from the most conservative to the most liberal all seem very skeptical of the NCAA's argument. Most, and the NCAA's argument was basically fans watch college sports because the athletes aren't paid. If the athletes are paid, they'll stop watching our sport and they weren't buying it. Uh, they were very scared. I thought there were, and I can't remember which justice said it, but something like, you know, it, you can't keep just harping on tradition at this point. Like a lot has changed in college sports. The money has changed and a lot. And uh, just because this is the way it's always been is not a, a valid argument. Stu, do you remember, um, and some of our younger listeners may not, but there was a time when there were no professional athletes like in the Olympics. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I remember like the first dream team was a big deal because back before that it was all college players and it was under this, like a couple of my colleagues, I remember back in my ESPN days would refer to it as shamaturism. And there was that kind of vibe around it. And I think just from seeing the reaction from some, some of the Supreme court justices, um, I feel like, you know, they looked at what is a, it was like a, I don't want to call it a criminally outdated model, but it is a, it is such a ancient business model. And that's what it is. It is a business model to, you know, even though they won't, won't want to call it a business, obviously there are some people making tens of millions of dollars off this. Right. And so I think the reaction was the analogy I would have is almost like you do something a certain way for a long time. And then somebody comes in from the outside, looks at it, goes, wait a minute, you're doing it that way. That's so stupid. That doesn't <laughs> make any sense. But, but we've done it this way all the whole, all along. Yeah, you have, but it's really stupid. And here's why. And then everybody else is like looking around going, you know, it's really stupid. Right. And then <laughs> you're like an idiot. Now I don't know if they feel like an idiot, but like, that's, how I kind of thought about it was, you know, as you said, and and I think a lot of people have made this comment, as polarizing as politics are, especially these days, it's the one thing that most people on the far left, far right, at least in, you know, in politics, see through a similar lens. Whereas I do feel like there are, you know, a bunch of people who probably, you know, follow us on Twitter are big fans of of college athletics who still go, Oh, you know, nobody, nobody, I would do it for free. Yeah. Education. And they still see it. And yeah, it's like, yeah, but nobody would pay to watch, you know, to go watch somebody who's like, you know, the caliber of like somebody playing basketball at the Y um, to, to, to pay for that. And I think that's kind of, there's a lot of stuff that rolls into one, including when they pointed out, wow, the college coaches are making a fortune these days. And I think that was, I think it was Clarence Thomas who made that point. Yeah. Um, and it's come out, you know, like I, Clarence Thomas, apparently, according to some people um, who are around Nebraska, Clarence Thomas apparently is like a, on 247 message boards or something. And just is a, a huge Nebraska fan. And so he has some, you know, he has at least a perspective on college sports. Yeah. It's always, and this is what it was like covering the um, O'Bannon trial, which took place in Oakland in front of a, very liberal judge who was by all, you know, not a college, not a sports fan. And so, you know, we live in this world every day and stuff that, that, you know, is, is up for debate here seems normalized, but it's always interesting to hear somebody who's not in that world weigh in on it. Um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who was a fairly recent appointee by Donald Trump. uh, Here's something he said that I thought was, you know, to your, to your point, right. He says, he said, it does seem the schools are conspiring with competitors, agreeing with competitors to pay no salaries to the workers who are making the schools billions of dollars on the theory that consumers want the schools to pay their workers nothing. And that just seems entirely circular and even somewhat disturbing. Um, now, they've done many, many public opinion polls on this. Like if you were to go on our little Twitter echo chamber, you would think like 99% of people think college athletes should be paid. That is definitely not the breakdown. You say your echo Any, chamber, you mean the people you, you follow or the people who follow you? Because I do think there's a difference there. No, the people, the people, you know, we both follow a lot of sports writers, right? Or, you know, sometimes uh, those sports writers retweet people from, you know, professors or people from, 
people who specialize in this academics. Yes. And, and you would just think it's like, so one-sided when they do public opinion surveys on it, it's pretty split. Like there's definitely, um, it's definitely, I would say like 50, 50. Now that has changed over the years. It probably was used to be even more so. However, there's any number of ways you can ask that question. And so both the, you know, in these various trials, the NCA has commissioned surveys and the plaintiffs have commissioned surveys. And depending on how you ask the question, you can get a lot of different responses, right? If I go to somebody in the public and say, do you approve or disapprove of college athletes being paid the way professionals are? That's probably going to be overwhelmingly no, like, because they're picturing, you know, guys making millions of dollars to play college football. If I go to somebody and say, do you approve or disapprove of athletes getting an additional $9,000 a year for educational expenses? That's probably going to tilt much more in the other direction. And that's actually what was at stake here. This was to be clear. This was not, they actually asked the NCAA, I mean, the, um, plaintiff's lawyer, Jeffrey Kessler, at one point, are you looking for us to give you a ruling that would allow for even more, you know, just like full on free market, whatever you can pay beyond what's in the scope of this case? And he said, no. So all this case is about is an additional eight. And I don't know, it was kind of arbitrary how the judge came up with this number, but $8,900 an additional. um, I don't think, I think if that came to be it would have zero impact on interest in college sports. People would forget it's even happening. Remember how controversial cost of attendance was back in, right. I want to say Four 2015. Yeah. Now nobody even remembers that it's happening. So, um, And I you think know, what, I, you just, what you just articulated in the last like two minutes is probably the most important point of this because a lot of times what you see on social media, and I'm not saying it's you know ill-conceived in this regard, but you see kind of the most um, outrageous points or, and I think it leads people into, yeah, they're going to think somebody just signed the Lindor deal, you know, where it's like nine figures or something. It's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. Um, because I think sometimes it gets conflated where, oh, well, Nick Saban's making $10 million a year. So people are going to infer that, uh, his star receiver should be making $2 million a year. And that's, not really where this is headed at this point. So again, just because, you know, everybody loves to read into the questions that the justices are asking, it doesn't necessarily mean that's how they're going to rule. And there is, you know, they also spent 45 minutes questioning um, Kessler. And there is definitely concern that I, I would say the number one concern you heard was um, the, about where does this go from here? Like if we rule this way, then what's the next case? Are they just going to come back? Somebody's going to come back and then sue for even more. And at what point, uh, somebody used a Jenga analogy, like at one point you keep building, adding and adding and adding, and at what point will the whole thing fall down? Um, Let me find this actual quote. Justice Breyer, this is a tough case for me because it's a unique product and it brings joy to a lot of people. And I worry about judges getting into the business of how amateur sports should be run. You know, you could see justices saying, well, I have reservations about this. I think... There's natures that, you know, I think it's wrong that coaches are making $7 million a year and the players aren't making anything. However, I think that the NCAA is right that what distinguish, that's what distinguishes their product and therefore I'm not going to rule in uh, the plaintiff's favor. So my guess is that this will go against the NCAA just like everything uh, up to this point has in this case. Um, but the question now is like, what's the NCAA going to do about it? And and while this particular case was not about NIL, you know, that's clearly front and center right now. They are under the gun to um, 
actually approve something um, just yesterday before we're recording this. So we know, you know, a lot of states have, have instituted their own laws uh, allowing NIL payments. Georgia became the latest one yesterday. And to your point about how this has become such a bipartisan issue, right? California, very liberal, was the first one to pass one of these laws. Georgia passes this one. I believe that their legislatures are still Republican controlled. And, and it was like 130 to two. Like nobody, it's like the easiest win for a politician to approve these things. So the next few months are going to be very, uh, very, very important for the NCAA. They've got to get NIL right, because if they don't, the states and eventually Congress are going to decide it for them. All right, Stu, now that we've gotten over that uh, kind of dry material. Uh, I hope I've to- tried so hard to make it not dry. Like it's, but, but maybe people will say it was, but like, hopefully, you know, if you don't give one hoot about like the mechanics of this stuff, hopefully that helped explain why they were, why they went in front of the Supreme Court and, and what happened. Yeah. Okay. So let's get to our guest. Uh, Martin Jarman is the AD at UCLA. He has been there a few years after coming from Boston College. Um, and I think you'll find a lot of the topics we covered with him will be pretty fascinating, not just for diehard college football fans, but college athletic fans in general. Okay, Stu, now we're pleased to be joined by our guest. Right now, he's at one of the hottest athletic programs in the country, uh, fresh off some a lot of uh, college basketball Martin Jarman, the AD at UCLA. Martin, uh, first of all, congrats on the run you guys are on. You are Your team comes in as 11 seed. They beat Michigan State to basically get into the tournament and then go on this crazy roll. Now you're in the final four. How are you holding up with this adrenaline rush? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a heck of a ride. Um, you know, I'm not sleeping much. I'm, I'm team no sleep right now. Uh, you know, when we won against Michigan the other night, night uh i couldn't sleep and then mick couldn't so we were texting each other around four in the morning and uh, i don't think he got to sleep at all and uh, i slept for about two hours but then you wait you know i wake up because your mind is running you make the final four you know how can i do some creative things how can we maximize this moment how can we get former alums involved you know make it just your mind is just like got 12 things going so i slept two hours that night and then i just went to go work out and been been on it ever since one one of the things that's obviously unique this year is in a normal you know non-bubble year the teams that keep advancing like they go back home to campus and they're heroes (laughs) and they get to celebrate with the students these guys just this means they get to stay in indianapolis even longer what can you i we didn't get to go inside the bubble tell us a little bit about what life is like in the ncaa tourney bubble well you know the, the the thing is uh, and the NCAA has done a great job uh, with it, obviously, uh, just the precautions and everything they've done. But when you're in, in, in one place for a long time, you know, the four walls start closing in a little bit. So, you know, um, although the food is good, if you have the same things over and over for a number of days, you know, you start getting a little tired of it. So the thing that I heard was the food is, is just getting a little bit, um, you know, tiring. But other than that, uh, they did a good job of like giving them things to do, top golf. Uh, a couple games and stuff, but you know, it's any, anytime you guys travel a lot, anytime you're in a hotel in the same room for X amount of days, you know, it, the, the walls start closing in a little bit. So it's uh, and even some of our students, we have some of our DIN student leaders that came uh, for the first game and they've been there 20 days. They, they uh, messaged me on Instagram and said, uh, we're going on 20 days and we did it during finals. So they actually um, started during finals and then spring break. So we've been through finals, spring break, 
And uh, now we're coming on the other side of it. So you've uh, developed some buddies on this trip I've seen from <laughs> like partner, like, and I don't know if it just organically came about through social media, but like, how did that actually kind of happen? And for people who haven't, maybe hadn't seen it on Twitter, uh, talk about some of these kind of relationships who have been along for the ride from this crazy, crazy ride. It's been the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's an organic story. Uh, first of all, I believe philosophically that energy starts with students. So everything that we do and I do, I try to engage students and get them going because it starts there. If you think about chance, it starts with students and then older people like me and, and, and older start getting into it. So, so there's a guy, Ryan Giesis, um, and he is a student at IU, actually a junior. So he tells the story because he's been on multiple interviews, but he, when we got announced that we were in the first four, he went online, saw tickets for like 80 bucks. And so he said, great, I'll get them. And then uh, like anybody, a college student, he just didn't get them right then. And he waited three or four hours. And he said, all of a sudden it was $600. So he said, I took the Twitter and he, he messaged or replied to our men's basketball account and Ben Bolch, who's the LA Times writer, and said, hey, if I get one, if, if you guys can give me one ticket, I'll go to Mackey Arena for the first four games against Michigan State, and I'll scream for 40 minutes. So I happened to be on Twitter, and I saw this, and I said, you know what? Michigan State is going to outnumber us. We still had uh, uh, only a limited number of tickets. You don't get that many tickets. Everything is, is significantly cut, as you guys know. We're getting probably 20% of what we normally would get from an allocation standpoint. So I said, you know what? I'm going to see if I can give them my tickets and, and, and do that. So I said, you know, I'll do you one better. You ask for one. I'll give you two. Get a friend. Scream loud. 40 minutes. They know it's going to be 45 minutes because that game went into overtime. And, and get to Mackey Arena. And he came. I got him tickets. And sometimes you just, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, and, and, and it, organically that game was so, so important for us getting over the hump. So naturally after the game, I find him because he's in a few rows right behind me and we just do a celebration. And I just think to record it, you know, just to show Bruins everywhere, like, hey, you know, it's, it's exciting. We're, we're with you. And 30,000 views later, you know, fly geese is fly is, uh, is like a hashtag. And, and brother geese is, is like our he's like our sister Gene, what I've, <laughs> what I've heard. But so every game he's he's near. He gets I get him tickets. And we celebrate after the game and, and we put it out. And it's just, it's a cool story. He's a great guy. He's a Bruin fan. He's from Calabasas, went to Calabasas High from LA. And, um, and it's just a cool story. That's what it's about, you know? So Martin, will he be staying at your house when you guys play uh, LSU at the beginning of the season? <laughs> that, that's the next question. Everybody's like, is he coming back for football season? You know, I, I don't know. I don't put anything past him, but I, I do know that night I was after the game when I was texting with Mick at like four in the morning, you know, uh, Ryan Geese is his name. Ryan texts me and says, Martin, I still can't believe this, you know, and I text him back and I say, hey, you know what? You're going to have final four tickets. We started this ride together. We're going to end this ride together. And I, and I just got goosebumps and he said, let's go. You know, <laughs> it takes me like four in the morning. He and I are texting. So it's, it's been cool, man. It's been really cool. Did you have guests? So obviously one of the storylines of this tournament has been the Pac-12, uh, you guys, but also, you know, a lot, a lot of other teams advanced very far and, and how nobody saw this coming. So, yeah. you know, you've, you followed UCLA basketball all year. They came into the tournament on a four game losing streak at that, that point in time. Like, is there any part of you that thinks this team could, could go to the final four? 
I'm not going to say I thought we would go to the Final Four. I did think we had a run in us because those four games we lost, we were winning all of those games in the second half. And we just couldn't finish. You know, we couldn't defensively, we couldn't finish. And so I knew we had the talent and the capability. It's just a matter of are, are we going to change our luck and, and it's defensively are we going to come together? So I'd be sitting here lying if I said, hey, we're, you know, in, in a four-game losing streak, we're a Final Four team. But I did think if we could get to the tournament and get that first one in, I think we would get the confidence to, like, you know, just play. And, and, uh, and that's what it is. And the Pac-12 is really good. You know, that's, you'll see me touting the Pac-12 all the time because I think people sleep on the conference. Basketball-wise, man, we were strong this year, you know, and, and you saw that bear out a little bit in the tournament. But, you know, Oregon, SC, UCLA, Oregon State, I mean, Arizona, you know, you can go down the list. We were strong. And so I'm, I'm glad that we had the kind of performance we had in the tournament just to show people you got to wake up. Don't sleep on the Pac-12. So for people who may may not be that familiar with your background, before you were at UCLA, you were the AD at Boston College and then spent a lot of years under Gene Smith at Ohio State. But about 20 years ago, you were in the NCAA tournament as a guard at UNC <laughs> Wilmington. Um, honestly, one of the things I know about Wilmington is that's where Michael Jordan from. Yeah. Uh, I know one of the bigger deals around UCLA in a long time was – getting the Jordan brand deal going. Um, we wrote about this a little bit a couple months ago, but now that there's been some time to kind of see maybe the impact, especially with this run now you guys are on, how you can maybe capitalize on it. So what are some of the opportunities that you see from getting this deal done? And what do you think it means to, to UCLA, not just UCLA basketball? Well, two things that we do, I always say this, is we recruit talent and we develop talent. That's what we do. We recruit talent and develop talent. And so you want to be aligned with a, with a company that's the best. And Nike and Jordan brand to me is the best. And we've never at UCLA, we've never been a Nike or Jordan brand school. So there's going to be some natural synergy and energy surrounding that. And you guys understand Nike and know in the grassroots, whether it's basketball or other sports, Jordan brand is huge and, and Nike is huge. So one, I just think that from a from a best in practice, they're they're the best. But also, too, you, you talk about L.A., and you talk about some of the social justice things that the Jordan brand is doing. Um, that's, you know, UCLA is about barrier breakers. You, you, you think about the people that have Ann Myers Drysdale, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, um, Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robin. I mean, Arthur Ashe. I mean, that's who we are. Yeah, like, think about it. I mean, that's who we are. So, so there's going to be some cool things that I think we can do that touch upon our history, but also move us forward in a positive way. So I'm excited about it. You know, we start officially July 1st, but we've already been working on some things and and uh, in the L.A. market, too. You know, it'll, it'll be cool. You'll you'll see some stuff. I'm, I'm excited about it. But um, it's a partnership that's been in the, the hopes for a lot of our fans for a lot of years. And I'm just happy we can finally get it done. Another initiative um, under you that that recently that got a lot of attention uh, in football um, UCLA scheduled its first ever games against HBCU opponents. Alabama State and North Carolina Central will come to the Rose Bowl in mm -hmm. 2022 and 2023 and bring their bands. Um, and I believe this is the first FCS games UCLA has played as well, which sometimes people, you know, frown on that. Like, we don't want to yeah. see them play FCS. But I think the reaction was overwhelmingly positive to this. Why was it important to you um, to get these games done? Yeah, you know, I mean, first of all, we were in a hole. It was we had the Michigan series that that um, that they didn't want to do anymore. So so we were you know, we had to find something. 
And, you know, for me, I just felt like with everything going on, you're in an environment, first of all, where ticket sales are going down across the country, you know, and there's an entertainment piece and value to football games. And, and, and you've got to start being more innovative and creative and doing some things different to try to help you um, keep those season ticket holders and develop new communities that may be interested in your product. So that's, that's part of that. But also, too, you know, HBCUs are strong. You know, there's so much talent at HBCUs. And I think in our climate and who we are, it was time to, to do that because to me, there's a lot of positives with it. One, um, you got to play somebody, right? And, and, and to me, HBCUs are very strong. Both of those programs are strong. If you look at the talent, it's there. Second of all, it's going to allow us to engage communities that traditionally maybe don't get to participate with the UCLA brand or our games. So we're going to do some things around those games with, with underserved communities, underrepresented communities to bring them out and really expose them to UCLA and our program. The other thing it does, too, from a fan engagement perspective, you guys, I don't know if you've seen HBCU bands. I mean, but they're big time. You know, that's a that's a big entertainment value. We're going to get fans just to come see the band and, and, and for the first time at the Rose Bowl. And then the, the final piece is the students. I had so many students, band members from UCLA's band to regular students saying, this is so cool. I've never experienced seeing an HBCU school compete and the band. I'm excited about it. And that's what we do it for. We do it for our students. So to me, why not do it? You know, it makes no sense to, you know, we don't get any wins from being one of the only X amount of schools that hasn't played an HBCU. You don't, that, that doesn't get you any wins, right? Um, there's a business side of this and there's an exposure side of this. And that's, that's why we did it. And it was time. Yeah. To that point real quick, Bruce, um, I'm up here in the Bay area a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, Cal played Grambling in the first game. Grambling. And that was their biggest crowd of the whole season. Like more people came out for that game than Texas a few weeks later. <laughs> so I, so I see where you're going with the entertainment perspective. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, sometimes people, can't see it and you got to help. That's what leadership is. You got to help. You got to do it. You know, it's the right thing to do and you got to help people see it. But I think five years from now, you're going to see more people scheduling HBCU schools because it's important to the ecosystem of college athletics. It really is. And, um, and I just, I'm proud that I could be a part of that and bring it to UCLA with our tradition, our history, um, especially with, with, with black African-American legendary Bruins, you know, it just made too much sense and it was time to do it. Martin, on the on the aspect of UCLA's history, and you mentioned some of the, you know, from Arthur Ashe, obviously Jackie Robinson was a multi-sport legend there. Um, with NIL where it is, I think you as as at UCLA, where living out here in Los Angeles, I know how big of a deal like the UCLA gymnastics program is. Mm -hmm. and, and some of the athletes who come from that, not just a lot of people see it as, oh, the revenue sports of football and basketball. Where do you see this going for your athletes? Not just, you know, DTR or Jaime right. Jaquez, but some, you know, some of the other athletes who maybe typically don't get into the mainstream exposure, but are, have big, big followings. Oh, I, I, first of all, it's going to be huge for us. I'm a big proponent of it at UCLA. I mean, you're going to be in this market. You're going to understand and, and get opportunities from a branding perspective that you can, and I don't want to discredit any small college towns, but you know, you're, you're not going to be exposed to what you're exposed to here. And so I, I had a meeting with seven of our student athletes that came that are high profile, you know, a, 
Uh, Rachel Garcia in softball is the best pitcher in the country. Uh, some of our gymnasts, you mentioned our, our program that have gone viral. I think that's where the, where the best benefit is going to be. I don't think it's going to be football and basketball necessarily. I see it. Uh, and again, we don't know. I'm, I'm just guessing, but I really see some of those other sports, your gymnastics, your softball sports that um, have a big following, don't have, um, don't have helmets like football does so you can see them. You can do camps and clinics. I think those are going to be the student athletes that benefit the most from this financially. And so what we're doing is we're working with those students now to say, hey, what would you want to see? Who are the people you would talk to from an advising standpoint? You know, um, that meeting I had, they said their parents, you know, by and large, right? And then what are some of the things that you think about? And I was surprised that a lot of our student athletes, they get contacted by companies right now already. You know, I, we had a, a, a female a tennis player that said she gets contacted all the time uh, from companies. So it's going to happen, you know, and we got to just make sure we are prepared for it. But I, I really see some of those uh, Olympic sports or country club sports, however you want to call them. I think those are going to be the biggest beneficiaries, your soccer, your softballs, your gymnastics, not necessarily your football, to be honest with you. All right. So this is a college football podcast. So we're going to get you out with some with a football question and an important one at that. So we've seen the great run the Pac-12 had in basketball this year after a few down years. Football, the, the reputation of Pac-12 football has taken a hit the last few years with not making the playoff. And um, so, you know, obviously you can't control what happens from one individual program to another. But with a new commissioner coming in and kind of a uh, kind of a check in piece like what does the conference as a whole need to do to get football back to where it was when Andrew Luck was at Stanford and and or USC was rolling under Pete Carroll or certainly some of the success UCLA had um, early on with Brett Hundley and, and when when Moore was the coach yeah I mean it's, it's, it's there's like an eight point step in my opinion that, that we have to do and we don't have enough time to go through it but I, I you know the first thing you have to do is you got to have the right leadership and 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 we are we're getting a new commissioner, but also the leadership with the coaches. You know, we need stability. Um, we, we can't be having coaches leave and get picked off from other conferences because then you're always in that, that kind of uh, starting and stopping, right? So, we, so I think we need consistency. Uh, and then I, also, too, we got to do a better job of, of marketing the Pac-12. We got to keep more talent on the West Coast that is leaving. That's a big issue. You, you know, again, for my UCLA, it's recruiting talent and developing talent. That's it. So we got to do a better job collectively of really honing in and keeping the talent on the West Coast to where some of our best players are not going to the East. You know, and that's that we won't win the way we need to win until we keep people at home the way we need to keep them home. And, and this last class, you're starting to see that a little bit more with some of our programs. Um, but but that's that's what it comes down to. You just you got to keep people at home. You got to keep some stability and then you get, you got to market and make sure that we're attractive to, to 16, 17, 18 year old kids that want to come play. So that's, you know, and then you got to win. I mean, you know, the bottom line is you got to win. You can't talk about it. You got to win and you got to have some big games that are on the national stage. And when you have that opportunity, you got to do it. You know, you see that with our basketball program, we've beaten Michigan state, big brand, Alabama, big brand, Michigan, we beat them. Right. So, so there's a level of respect and, that you earn and you get, and then that makes it that makes it go. So you got to win some games. All right, Martin, we're going to let you out on that. We know you have been running on fumes for the last <laughs> couple of days, and know you got a lot of a lot of brainstorming still to go for this uh, for this final four run. So we appreciate you making some time for us today on the Audible. 
we'll definitely see you down the road. All right, fellas. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. Take it easy. All right. Martin was fired up. He should be. I, I thought it was, um, it's been a blast watching UCLA in this tournament and that Michigan game, I think what the final score is 50 to 49. So kind of ugly, but just really intense all the way through. Um, now they got Gonzaga and it's like the largest point spread in the history of the final four. <laughs> I think so. it's, yeah, I think it's like the second biggest point spread in like the modern tournament era. Uh, so we four. wish them luck in that one. I think uh, all signs are pointing toward Gonzaga, but they've surprised us already. All right. Back to football. As always, you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com. Gordon in Atlanta starts us off with a really fun game. Ready? Mm-hmm. Stu and Bruce, thanks for giving us some good content in the offseason. Let's play a game. Of the following pairs of schools, you have to pick the program that will perform better on the field over the next five seasons. Feel free to adjust or propose other interesting pairs. Okay, so over the next five years, Bruce, who's going to perform better, Georgia or Florida? I'm going to go with Georgia. Stu? Yeah, I'm going to go with Georgia as well. I don't Obviously, there's not this huge gap that, that people thought there was going into last season, but Kirby just is recruiting it at, you know, absolute top of the sport. I think there's still some questions about how well Dan Mullen can recruit. Um, of course, you never know. It could be coaching changes and whatnot, but you know, let's just assume they're both there. I think, you know, over the next five years, Kirby probably wins the East uh, more often than Florida does. This one's tough. LSU, Texas a I mean, obviously, Texas A&M is trending in a, in a different direction after 2020. They were a top five season. LSU was five and five. Um, you know, I'm going to say LSU. I know I did a book with Ed Ogeron, but here's the thing. Texas A&M has just never been able to sustain anything. If you remember, Kevin Sumlin had a top five season his first couple of years at A&M as well. Now, people will say, well... Jimbo Fisher won a national title before Kevin Sumlin didn't. I just think that LSU is better positioned to sustain it just because that's what we've seen. Les Miles, one big there. Obviously, Nick Saban, one big there. We haven't seen that at, to that degree at Texas A&M. That is a very good argument, and yet I am still inclined to say Texas A&M uh, because of my confidence in Jimbo Fisher, but also – and look, I still think LSU, they could be right back in the mix this year. By no means do I think last year means that that was a one-time thing for LSU. I What bothers me about LSU is just there's so much chaos and dysfunction around that place right now um, on so many different fronts. And obviously that's not conducive toward building a football dynasty. I feel like at A&M, where there's a really good AD in place now in Ross Bjork and, and obviously a national championship coach, just like everybody's aligned, they're all in on Jimbo. Obviously, they they made it clear with that contract, and you know, it's 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 kind of a race to me between those two to see who who can at some point Saban will retire. Who knows? And who can who can step up and take that place? So um, tough call. I'll go with AM, You go with LSU. I'm glad we're not going to necessarily have the same answer to all of these. Ole Miss or Tennessee? By the way, before we get to that one, at some point Saban's going to retire. We've been what, saying that for 10 years. Yeah, I haven't. But um, at, at what, like, would it shock you if Nick Saban is his head coach at Alabama longer than both, you know, Jimbo's got that ridiculously long, long contract, you know, built in. Wouldn't shock me if Nick Saban is still there six years from now. 
Um, six years is a long time, but it wouldn't surprise it wouldn't surprise me if he outlasts both those guys. I mean, uh, you know, just this morning that we're recording, Roy Williams retired as the UNC basketball coach. He's younger than Mike Shashesky, and yet Mike Shashesky is still going strong, and Roy's hanging it up, and uh, something like that could certainly happen here. Um, um, okay, so so Tennessee or Ole Miss? The Kiffin Bowl. Um, I am going to say Ole Miss. I mean. Lane Kiffin has a quarterback, as you said last time out. He has got a really terrific offense. They're really bad on defense, but they don't have the NCAA dark cloud hanging over it as Tennessee does. So I'm, I feel pretty strong. I don't, I don't think Ole Miss is going to go off and be a top ten team anytime soon, but I think they could be a top twenty-five team. Whereas I'm just, I think Tennessee is going to be in a rocky place for a little while. No, I'm 100% agreed on that one. You know, I think maybe maybe by the time you get to the end of those five seasons, Tennessee's in a much better place. But I think the next few years could be as 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 rough as they have been recently. Like the next few years could be just awful for Tennessee as they um, try to dig out of this hole. Uh, and you know, I think Ole Miss has a top 25 coach in place. So we see where that goes. This is another one I thought was pretty tough: Iowa State or Texas. Um, I'm going to say Iowa state. I just think right now they are positioned. Well, I think Matt Campbell's got them to the point where if you look at it, they have a good quarterback who's played a lot of football. Brees Hall's a terrific running back. They had an excellent tight end in Charlie Kolar. They got a bunch of pieces in place. They're coming off their best season ever. Um, yeah, I do think Sark takes over a pretty good situation, not a great situation, but a pretty good one, but I'm still going with Matt Campbell and Iowa state. Well, I'm going to go, begrudgingly with Texas because that makes it seem like I'm saying don't have faith in Matt Campbell. I absolutely do, but I do am a believer in kind of the regression to the mean theory. And that at some point in the next five years, Texas, they're overdue at this point, at some point, Texas will start becoming more like the Texas that we knew when Mac Brown was there and Iowa state will probably have a great season this year. And I don't think once, um, you know, those guys leave the current roster that they then go four and eight by any means, but they have a ceiling. Uh, they're not going to become what Oklahoma is now. Texas will I, always have the potential to become that. All right. So this is where I want to jump off to a little bit for, pardon me, but um, so you said regression to the mean, assuming Matt Campbell's there. Um, I thought about this the other day. I had this conversation with a football coach I know about Gonzaga. And if you look at, at them, they pre prior to 2000, they had never finished in the top 25 in college basketball. And now you can make a strong case that they are, you know, right now they're the best team in college basketball. Um, and what they built is they are a legit powerhouse, right? It doesn't look like they're going away anytime. Now, some of the rules have benefited them and the, you know, how they've gotten to this point, saying all that to get to this point. You try to think about a college football program that has had a similar trajectory. There really isn't. It's a different sport. You can say Bill Snyder took over K-State, but they were never, they were really, really good. They weren't what Gonzaga is. So if Matt Campbell were to stay there, stay there for another 15 years, you think this is possible? I'm not saying they could be the Gonzaga of, of college football. But why is there a ceiling on, on Iowa State if they have a great coach? So first of all, um, 
there's a question we're going to get to later that gets into that exact topic of how come there can be a Gonzaga in basketball, but not football. Um, I, I think I would, if Matt Campbell stays there for 15 years, I could see Iowa state becoming the Wisconsin of the big 12, right? The program that just year after year gets the most out of their players. And, and Wisconsin has won big 10 titles and contended for big 10 titles, but there's just such inertia in recruiting where Iowa state is never going to become a program that recruits a bunch of five stars and some four stars and finishes eighth in the country in recruiting. And Texas will always have the opportunity to do that. And talent generally wins out, right? Like Wisconsin, as successful as Wisconsin has been in the Big Ten, they're not Ohio State. And I think that's kind of what the situation is here. Like, I, I couldn't put a win number on it, but like, could Iowa State become a team that wins nine games a year and you, and you don't think twice about it? It's no longer surprising? Sure. Is Iowa State going to win the national championship in the next 15 years? I don't think so. Could Texas with the right coach? Yes. You don't think there's any chance or you don't think it's realistic? I think the sport, college, unlike college basketball, the college football is just stacked against. Now, maybe I will say maybe if they, when they go to an 18 playoff, maybe that changes. But right now it's just so stacked against that next level team, the next level programs that are good, but not – uh, you know, an NFL factory. Um, do you want to like, do you want to finish off this list or do you want to get into that? No, Gonzaga, I, Gonzaga yeah, I didn't realize that that was the Gonzaga question. There are a couple one down. Let's know. I definitely want to finish this up. I mean, Gordon gave us a great, like yeah. I, I framed it really well. You should actually hire him, Stu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next up is a pack 12 one. It is Oregon or USC. What do you think? In some ways, it's a similar, you know, you could say similar, like at some point, USC can get back to being USC. The difference in this one to me is that Oregon has been established for a long time. They've reached national title games, and I think they've got a really good coach in place. So I'm going Oregon. I am too. He is a recruiting machine. Honestly, if USC were to ever, you know, ever at some point part ways with with uh, Clay Helton, if I was USC, this I would go try to go hire Mario Cristobal. He recruits as he recruits like a demon and he is a offensive line guy. And I think that's the stuff that USC diehards like they like, you know, they see themselves as physical football and that's what he's about. So anyway, I'm agree with you on you on Oregon. Uh, this next one is the most fascinating one of the whole group. If you ask me. Okay. It is Nebraska or Indiana, two big 10 schools in different divisions is in no tough? previous era of college football would this even have been like a remote. Anybody would think to ask, could Indiana have a better next five seasons than Nebraska? But it's absolutely a relevant question right now. And yet I'm going to say Nebraska. And maybe I'm still being a little too like stuck in the past. I don't know. At some point they'll get their act together. I, to what extent? I don't know. And, you know, we talked about this with Tom Allen on the about in the coaches rankings, like great all credit to what he's done the last couple of seasons but you just it's too early to say like whether they have staying power or whether that'll prove to be you know one of those things you look back on 10 years from now hey remember when indiana had a couple of good seasons yeah um this was you know the more i thought about it because i was going to default to say indiana um you know it's interesting because indiana had better skill guys than nebraska last year you know good tight end two good receivers yeah like, I don't know. Is, is this a question of Tom Allen versus Scott Frost or is it, I mean, 
it, 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 it might be, but I would say if, if Scott Frost goes four and eight this year, he probably will be out of there. So they could be on to their next coach. And um, it's tough. Cause like, I think who's going to be better football team next season, Indiana or Nebraska, Indiana. That would be my, I wouldn't even hesitate. But when you talk about five years, like we don't know who's going to be on their rosters five years from now, but I do think that Nebraska with its tradition, history and, and money, like generally speaking should have a better roster than Indiana. Uh, you know, let's do, I think you've convinced me. I was on the fence. I'm going to agree with you. All right. Um, All right, Bruce, uh, Miami or UNC. By the way, and we should just say, just from the feedback I got, the most taken to task uh, a guy who was not on the coach on our top 25 list, and this was both of us, was about Mac Brown. Um, we got an email about that that I couldn't include because it was just kind of a profane. <laughs> the guy was so upset with us. Um, yes. All right. Well, I apologize. I, I, I'm sorry, Jeremy Sharp had to break out the profanity. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm going to go with Miami here. They they are recruiting very well now. I think Manny Diaz has them um, trending upward. Um, I say this one, they're probably going to get their butts kicked maybe the first time out against Alabama. But, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going to say I, I'm going to say Miami here. I just think that they're they are positioned right now to, I think, take take some steps forward given how they're recruiting. I'm going to say UNC. Yeah. Um because they're, they're trending upward as well. And I think that, how do I phrase this? Uh, I just, I like Manny Diaz. I don't know that I feel very confident yet that he's the guy to return them to glory, but I do think UNC found its right coach. And um, that doesn't mean that like, I could see them They're They are in the same division. They play each other every year. If you, maybe over the next five years, the, they, they go three and one goes three and two against the other, something like that. Like, I don't think there'll be a big separation there. Uh, I just think UNC, I have more faith in, in their coach than I do in Miami's, even though I didn't have him in the top 25. It's not like I ever considered Manny Diaz. All right. The last one, another good one. UCF or Auburn? Yes. The Gus Malzahn question. And you know, it's a tough one because it's just, you're talking about two different leagues, two different levels. You know, what does success look like for UCF versus, uh, you know, what does perform better on the field look like? Like if UCF goes 10 and two in the AAC and Auburn goes eight and four in the SEC, who had the better season? Um, I'm going to go, ah, that is tough. Um, I think I got to go Auburn just because uh, of everything I just said before. Like they're, they're, no matter who the coach is, they're always going to recruit great players. Um, actually, I don't know. I'm changing my mind. I'm going UCF because I just realized that earlier in this thing, I, I talked up AM, I talked up Ole Miss, like somebody in that division's got to not win. So, and I'm not totally convinced on Brian, <laughs> Brian, yeah, I'm not all that sold on Brian Harson. and UCF is in a really good place in that conference. Even if Cincinnati maybe keeps winning or SMU, like I think UCF will always be in the mix. UCF. Yeah, I, uh, that's where I was going to go just because, and I think you you set it up pretty well. I just think it, it will be hard for UCF the way they are positioned to not to do worse than like eight and four. Um, I think that's that that's really going to feel like a down year. And I like the staff that Gus put together at UCF. Um, I'm curious to see how he's going to do on offense, just because you know, like. 
I, I want to see what it, this is going to look like. He's he's going to have better players, not that he certainly had at Auburn, but just better players than he won't be coaching against SEC defenses. Um, like yeah, he, he's in a place that can get great skill players. You can get great skill players at UCF, and you're not going to have to face you yeah. know, teams that have three NFL defensive linemen starting you know every year. So, um, I mean, the thing with it, like <laughs> – like the thing I would use, and we'll talk about the draft down the road a little bit. Like this to me is like a very SEC thing. Like, had you ever heard of Jamin Davis before, Stu? No. So Jamin Davis plays at Kentucky. I don't want to call him a one-year wonder because he he was supposed to be a a you know a breakout player in 2019. Hurts his hamstring and doesn't really you know play as much. And then this year has a terrific year. He probably will be a first-round pick now. I mean, he's a freaky athlete from South Georgia who ends up at Kentucky as a three-star. And my point on this is, like, and I'm not saying there aren't that guy, like one or two of those guys floating around every so often in certainly in group of five or in the AAC. But there are, that is not like that unusual for somebody like that in the SEC. Like Mississippi State has had a bunch of dudes, whether it's, you know, Chris Jones or, um, you know, it just... Fletcher Cox or the, like those kinds of guys who are like difference maker guys. And that's kind of what Gus or whoever was, you know, an offensive coach is dealing with in the sec. Right. And so um, long winded answer. Uh, I'm going to say UCF on that. Great question, Gordon. Stu, you should send him like a pullover or something like this was, this was one of the better questions we've gotten ever. Um, Gordon, I've got a special deal for you. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, <laughs> come on. go to theathletic.com slash the audible and you can get a subscription for just $1 a month right now. I'm, I'm just for you, Gordon, just for asking that special question. You know what? You know what? Like in the spirit of Martin, Martin and his buddy from IU, the <laughs> next game, Stu, you go to and you ought to, if it's in the, if it's in the South, you either at least need to bring him to Chick-fil-A or you need to bring him with you to like the Chick-fil-A game. It's true. Atlanta is a place under normal times that I get to quite a bit. Gordon, next time I'm there, free chick play <laughs> on me. Uh, one of our uh, regular uh, question askers, Lewis Chilton. How do you pronounce that? La Kenyatta. But what's the Flintridge part? Uh, maybe that's part. I mean, maybe that's the area around it. I don't you know. You know what's crazy question. is we have the five things I paste, copied and pasted into here. Two of them are from people in La Kenyatta. Um. All right, so he asks. Hey, Bruce, by the way, you know who's from La Cañada? Um, Scott, the producer at uh, at Fox that you used to work with. Oh, okay. Scott Riddell. Nobody, nobody knows who you're talking about, but yeah, I. Do. Well, you did. That's why. <laughs> Maybe I hope you remember him. I do. Bruce was recently reminiscing about his childhood fandom of Louisville basketball, going back to the Daryl Griffith Doctors of Dunk days, and as a native of Louisville, I remember many years of awesome dunks including Everett Sullivan's reverse dunk against Florida State and LeBradford Smith regularly imitating Jordan and Freedom Hall. Yet it seems the Showtime dunk has mostly disappeared from modern college basketball. This past weekend, USC's Evan, this one was Evan Obley's uh, posterizing of Oregon was rare and thrilling. That was one of the most like mesmerizing dunks I've seen in a college game in a long time. Is there any aspect of, quote, old time college football that you miss, like the dunks of old in basketball? You know, I like this question because when I saw it, the first thought, and this is random, but 
there was something I want to say, maybe you and I both watched it separately. Somebody posted something on YouTube and it was really um, like kind of mind blowing to watch. It might've been the old blue bonnet bowl. Yeah. I posted that. Thing? Yeah. And um, I forgot like some of the, some of the people involved who were the announcers and then the players were introduced, but it was like the shoulder pads were like, you know, yeah. Yep. The, the, yep. the shoulder, shoulder pads. That's exactly what I was going to say. The shoulder, the shoulder pads. pads were like, were like two kids car seats <laughs> and a neck roll in the middle. Yeah. Um, the neck rolls and the shoulder pads was the very first thing I was going to say. I mean like that kind of era, I think you just kind of like romanticize like the, the kind of cheesy music that was going into it. Um, you know, part of it, and obviously I'm older than you is like that. Like, I, I don't know why I remember this, but like there was a, like, this is part of why I love bowl games. Um, it, the bowl games that are like around Christmas, but not on Christmas. It's like back then when there was not tons of sports on TV all the time, the idea to, find out at seven o'clock that there was going to be, I don't know, Missouri play Indiana or two random teams match up. Um, like those kind of, this is before ESPN just was like such a, such a, you know, happy place for me as a little kid that that's kind of the stuff I, you know, kind of romanticize a little bit um, about, you know, it just kind of, it just puts me in a good place. I can't, I don't really, I'm not doing a good job of articulating that, but that's where I go. Yeah. I miss, I miss the, you know, glory days of bowl games. I, I miss when bowl games, you know, it's, it, I, I am accepting of reality that that, that ship has sailed, but it stinks that they've now become something that is completely devalued and players skip and fans don't seem to care about like, you know, I miss when you, you would wake up on New Year's Day and be like, oh, my gosh, we get the Outback Bowl. We get the Citrus Bowl and the Outback Bowl and this bowl and then the Rose Bowl. And, and, and you know, and, and and nobody was like, oh, I'm turning in to see an exhibition game. Like, no, these mattered. Um, so uh, anything else come to mind? Yeah, I, I don't have, have like a okay, I have a quick question for you on this. And it's probably not going to give a quick answer. But one thing I've thought about is back in that day and age, where you didn't have replay like i wondered would i be happier as a football fan if replay it was either one or the other either you have it and you're getting all these stuff reviewed and it kind of drags on or you're just like hey we're gonna live with the crappy calls that may happen over a course of a game and it may seem even more egregious now because the era i was talking about like in the late 70s you know, we had low def TV. You didn't have a million camera angles. The technology wasn't the same. So yeah, the call might've been blown and maybe you knew it, maybe you didn't, but it wasn't like now it's like the Zapruder film or whatever that, right. you know? So would you prefer if it was all or nothing, no yes. replay, you don't I, want replay. I, if you did away with replay tomorrow, I would be fine with it. Now. I think, I think that doesn't, I don't think that's possible because of exactly what you said. Like people would be watching these games with 27 different camera angles. And you see it and on it would social just, media now, and it would be, like yeah. it tweets out. You don't have to watch the game. It would be so obvious that it was a terrible. Yeah. It would be so obvious that there was a terrible call that the very first thing people would say is why aren't we allowed to review these? So they don't, you know, that, that doesn't coexist, but I do agree that um, it wasn't the worst thing in the world, honestly, when like, for instance, the game that, that I talk about the most, 
pushed, right? The USC Northwestern Rose Bowl. There was a play in there where Brian Musso, the Northwestern receiver slash punt returner, was fumbled and USC recovered. And it was debatable, but Northwestern fans would tell you that he was down um, and had a big impact on the game. But like you just accepted it. Like, well, they missed the call. We now we go on to the next one. So and then you don't get I mean, I think I assume what you're saying is you would do without the five minute stop the game. Everything stops. We have to wait around for these guys to come up with a decision that sometimes still isn't right. Not for the podcast, but Brian Musso is married to somebody who I I'm trying to remember. Somebody I used to think was pretty hot. Who's like, it was a singer that I, I liked. Are you, you serious? Yeah. No. Yeah. Christy and I were talking about, it was like, Oh, I used to like her. This was back in the early two thousands. Um, and I was like, shit, I remember that guy. He played at Northwestern. He's Johnny Musso's son. I didn't know who Johnny Musso really was other than that. Oh, funny. I know exactly who it is. I just looked it up. Heather Headley. Yeah. Heather uh, Headley she, had a hot R&B song. A few hot she R&B went to songs. Northwestern. Yeah. Oh. She she was um, she went to school. Same She's time I did. She's an actress now. That's why Christy knew who she was. I was like, yeah, she had like a couple of big R&B songs. She won the 2010 Grammy for Best Contemporary R&B Gospel Album. Yeah. Okay. Couldn't have told you that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. I'm guessing that was not. You could have sat next to her in every class <laughs> on your schedule, and I'm guessing you wouldn't have known which what kind of music she was into. Um, okay. Sorry, Sue. All right. Next question. Um, Robert this gets Madel. into what you were saying before about Gonzaga. Okay. All right, Stu. I may have spo- I may have stepped trampled on Robert Maydol's question. Robert is from Seattle. Um, a little earlier when I went off script. Stu and Bruce, I love the pod. Watching the NCAA tournament tourney has me thinking about how basketball can have so many non-blue bloods seriously compete for national titles, where football has the opposite. My theories are this. One, having fewer overall players on a team leads to more overall variance and results. A non-blue blood only needs to hit on one or two players to make a great team. Two, one-and-done players. Clemson got Trevor Lawrence for three years, but his basketball equivalent would be in the NBA after his freshman season. And three, the results of a basketball game is just more random than the results of a football game. I think he's on to something. <laughs> Ken, Ken Palm would have to tell us about number three, whether that's like statistically valid. But um, so to your Gonzaga example, uh, the, the way Gonzaga was able to go from, you know, tiny little Cinderella story to possibly the national champion this year uh, was first of all, um, that they could play in a 64 team tournament and prove themselves against the best teams in the country year after year. Whereas there's just no opportunity for Boise state or, uh, UCF to do that. Right. They might get a one-off opportunity, in a in a bowl game. Um, but I remember when Gonzaga first with Matt Santangelo and Casey Calvary and those guys, like they went to three straight sweet 16s. And it just kind of built from like they did that with much less talented teams than they, they have now. But then it started to build on itself where they could recruit better and better players. And then I think the biggest thing, right, like, um, you know, let's, who's a good example from this year, like USC, right? They, they haven't been that great in basketball. And then they get a, a possible top five pick and Evan Mobley and suddenly they win the Pac-12. Like it doesn't take that many guys to elevate a basketball program. Whereas somebody to your Iowa state example that it's taken Matt Campbell, right? Four or five years of building and building and building the roster to get where they are now. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, to his point about the one great player, um, you know, whether it's Steph Curry or even like look at, you know, Damian Oler goes to Weber State. Um, you know, the equivalent to me is like Khalil Mack was a phenomenal football player at Buffalo. One great linebacker cannot – he was not beating Ohio State. He may have terrorized them for, for a little bit, but you, you're not winning that game off of right. one great player. And so we've seen that with, you know, one great player. I mean, and I don't want to say there wasn't other really good players at, at Nebraska with Indomitian and Sue because obviously Levante Davids had a great NFL career, a terrific one. But and, – and I think you'd agree with me, and Dominic and Sue is about as a dominant defensive player as either one of us has covered in college. So uh, – and again, they were good, and that was a close to a blue blood program. I just think it's – the sport is set up really different. And as he said, when you have that one breakout year, um, you know, it's just it's really different. I would also just caution that uh... – when he says that it's easier for a non-blue blood to win the national title, I mean, if you look back at the list of national champions in college basketball, it's still a whole lot of Duke, UNC, Kentucky, et cetera. Um, but more teams get into the, like Auburn yeah. went to the final four a couple of years ago, um, kind of out of nowhere, right? Houston's in the final four this year, kind of out of nowhere. Like Didn't there's George opportunities. Mason, George Mason went to the final George four. Mason, VCU, uh, Loyola, right? There's opportunities to, make a deep run in the tourney and get a lot of exposure for your school, but to actually cut down the nets at the end, that generally ends up being, uh, now I will say Texas tech came real close a couple of years ago. That would have, that would have been a definite non blue blood basketball program. But cutting is Texas down the nets. Tech, I mean, is Texas tech different from a basketball profile than Baylor? I remember what, what kind of a, I mean, a dumpster fire of epic proportions that program was, not that long ago because of the Dave bliss and the murder and all that craziness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, Baylor, the fact that they're in the final four, you know, you would have thought that basketball program would, would be irrelevant for years and years, but you know, it's been a, the, the, the difference is like when Texas tech went to the national title game two years ago, I don't even think they were in the NCAA tournament the year before I could be wrong, but like, it wasn't like they were like right on the brink, right on the brink. And then they broke through. They just kind of came out of nowhere. Baylor has been building toward this under Scott Drew for 15 years. Fair enough. Good question. Um, sorry, Stu. Hang on one second. Okay, Stu, let's get into this because it, it, you know, obviously we had a lot of back and forth from our top 25 coaches list. There are a flurry of emails about them. Um, should I start with Adam Clasco's question first? Yeah. So, well, they're not even really questions. They're just feedback. And yes. rather than, rather than relit, you know, relitigating James Franklin's ranking or whatever, I just wanted to highlight these two because they, uh, they just give us feedback about the show and they couldn't be more opposite. Okay. Uh, I, I will start with Adam's. This is Adam Clasco, Stu and Bruce. I'm a longtime listener of the show. I listened to it before the hiatus, and I even listened to the old Mandel Experience show. Whew, that's a long time ago. Yeah, it's so long ago. I don't even know about it. Um, for Mandel the, Initiative. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, furthermore, I am an avid college football podcast listener. I caught the recent episode regarding the top 25 coaches and also listened to your appearance on the AP Top 25 college football show with Ralph Russo. Thank you, Adam, for that. Uh, the top 25 coach shows have been increasingly displeasurable to me. What I think bothers me the most 
about these episodes, this one and in past years, is the discourse between the two of you. The episodes sound like two guys arrogantly believing that they're the smartest one in the room and lobbing borderline personal insults at each other over coach rankings, i.e. Bruce calling Stu a Twitter troll on Ralph's show. From what I can gather, you guys are personal friends and at the very least have a professional respect for each other. Certainly you guys can disagree without being disagreeable. Thank you, Adam. And then, and then I will follow with Ian P. McFarlane from La Cañada. Bruce and Stewart, happy vaccine season. I loved, <laughs> I loved the top twenty. I loved the top twenty-five coaches episode as I do every year. It was reminiscent of four to five years ago when the show was just Bruce yelling at Stewart in pure exasperation. These are the shows that I miss. Guests are great when there is one topic that is shaping college football. For the most part, I tune in to hear you guys bitch at each other over arguments that cannot be won. Fascinating. Two completely different reactions to the same exact thing the tone of the show so i'm gonna i'm gonna start on adam's question and or adam's comment i thank him for being candid um this is entirely possible that this is a bruce issue being like when i saw that i was like you know what there was a time back when i worked at cbs i worked with uh, one of the people i work with was brian jones the former texas linebacking great and big personality and we would sometimes argue on the show and i remembered after we got off one day uh, off the set one of the producers was like basically said you guys need to tone it down because people think you hate you genuinely hate him and <laughs> which nothing could be further in truth uh, brian jones was one of my favorite people to work with he was a lot, lot of fun everything i like him all that and i think it reminded me um, sometimes I think people think that, especially you know, with something like this, because if I really had, you know, animus towards Stu or, you know, like this was just didn't res respect his opinion on these things, I, it wouldn't be on the podcast. Like it would probably be something that would be over the phone or whatever it was. But I think it comes back to that. And it is funny is, Stu, do you remember Antonio Bryant, the great pit receiver? Of course. So I remember doing a story on Antonio Bryant. There was a line in there where it was like kind of, it was like, it was about his facial expressions. And I think one of the things was, I think a lot of times from talking to him, people in, always interpreted his moods from like, he didn't have a good poker face and he didn't have it. And I was like, you know, I think there's times where people think I am, you know, a hundred percent like pissed off about this when maybe it's a little tongue in cheek. Now it's, do I think Stu was really wrong on James Franklin or whatever and those things? Yes. Would I, would I lash out at him to, uh, to be, <laughs> I'd be, you know, dismissive of that in that regard. I hope not. Um, did I get a kick out of Ralph? going through the going with the cat jokes about Stu's, you know, kind of bouncing around. Yes, I did. I, I will, I will own up to that. But um, unfortunately it was like, yeah, it's, I don't know if, if I felt like I was offending Stu or, or cutting at him personally on those, then I certainly wouldn't do it. Um, I think so. people should know that you're just hearing an extension of, you know, like we had, we started to have that, that same debate on the phone the night before, you know, like we were talking about the rankings and, and I was like, save it for the podcast, save it for the podcast. Like we enjoy debating each other over these rankings and various other topics. And yeah, there's probably a little bit of like 
I'm intentionally poking the bear a little bit. I'm, I'm, or, you know, and I think you are as well. Um, it's all in good fun. The Ralph podcast and God bless Ralph. He's probably listening to this right now. He's going to text us about this. That one felt a little different to me because it was two on one. <laughs> like for whatever reason, you guys had the same exact and alignment. I did on not know list. it was coming. Yeah. I did not, not like we, we worked it out. Like I was surprised when Ralph, we talked about Jim Harbaugh and I felt like I was like, you know, climbing up a hill to plant the flag there of something. It's just because I had him like in the high, you know, in the, in the twenties. And he was like, yeah, I had him 19. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's harder to push back when you're pushing back against two than one. So the the person who emailed me that, that obscene thing about Mac Brown, I should forward to Ralph and they can go out and get drinks because they both think Mac Brown is a coaching God. Uh, But yeah, that, that, that one, that one was different than the one we did. Um, I'm glad, I hope more people, took the experience away that Ian did. It's just two friends who uh, are um, who who, like a lot of those things that we talk about on here are not, we don't really debate, right? Like that, that thing we just did about the, which schools can win five. We didn't get particular, it was fun, but we didn't get particularly fired up about it. For whatever reason, we get really fired up about these coach rankings and it shows. Yeah. And I I think, I, I actually don't think we disagree on all that much college football wise. You know, like I had asked you 10 minutes ago about the officiating, would you want instant replay or not? Like, I think there are some people we know who can get fired up about a bunch of stuff. Um, you know, and I think we do that a little bit about when it comes to um, CFP rankings. I don't think we get, I don't think we disagree a whole heck of a lot. But I think our just kind of our method methodology a little bit sometimes gets there where um, for whatever reason, and I am so like, has if it's happened before, then I've seen it and I cannot, you know, wriggle myself away with like, you know, this team X beat team Y on the field. So no if they have the same record. Even if one, you know, like, remember how I felt like we used to really bicker a lot about Florida State when Jameis was there. Um, that, that was one. Yeah, that was one we really um, disagreed on. But um, and we bicker a lot on Cam Newton, um, <laughs> you know, and but beyond that, I don't know if there's too much that really gets it going. Like, like this. Particular we actually season. disagree much more strongly on food and music than we do on college football, I think. Yeah, but that I'm not going to like to <laughs> me, that is so subjective yeah. You know, like, I don't even know about the food part if we disagree that much on it. Um, certainly on music we do, but that's just taste. I mean, that's not like, I don't begrudge, um, you know, begrudge is even a crappy word for it. But I, you know, it's like, that's just, you know, like, I have no idea what music Andy likes, but it's music Andy likes, you know, I, yeah. you know, like same thing with Max. It's just, I, you know, um, you know, I think our frames of reference sometimes sneak up, like, um, you know, so, uh, anyway, rest assured, everybody, we don't hate each other. Um, last one. I know this is very near and dear to your Harper's, uh, from James Birdsong. Upon his passing, I learned that Howard Schnellenberger is currently ineligible for induction into the college football hall of fame because his winning percentage of 50.6 did not meet the minimum threshold. It seems strange to me that such a hard line has been set by the hall of fame, especially for someone like Schnellenberger, who essentially built Miami, Louisville and FAU programs from nothing. What other, what other criteria have to be met for a head coach to be inducted to the Hall of Fame? And do you agree with this hard stance? Okay, Stu, uh, this one I'm going to hit because, as you said, it, it's near and dear to my heart. Uh, Howard Schnellenberger 
Without Howard Schnellenberger, there is no the U. The football program would have gone completely under. Um, I wrote about this a lot in my book, Kane Mutiny, and it's true. I mean, they were about to just get the plug pulled on the program. And if you think back, I mean, now Miami has a basketball program that people have known about for a long time. But back when Schnellenberger was there, they had cut the basketball program. It didn't exist. And they were there was movement to pull the plug on the football program. They froze the budget. They basically, and this is what he told me, we couldn't spend any more money, not for erasers or pencils or phone calls to recruits, he told me. That scared all of us. So they literally had to scrounge for nickels and uh, and dimes to call the recruits from the corner payphone. Um, but at some point, uh, not that long after that, the school president shifted some funds around and then they got it rolling. And he really helped change the landscape of college football recruiting back then. He had a state of Miami plan where it's basically everything from Central Florida down was players that they were going to chase and sell on the idea of staying home. And the players bought in and they turned into a powerhouse. He won a national title and then he moved on. But here's the issue that I have. Because without Howard Schomer, I said the program doesn't go on to win five national titles or produce, you know, all these legendary football players. But also then eventually he takes over a Louisville program that was a dud and he turns it into one that's winning big bowl games and is now really established. He started FAU, as, as James said, from nothing. So his winning percentage from those reclamation jobs or startups isn't that great um it's a little over 500 and the criteria the college football hall of fame has it, it now is that it has to be uh above the 60 percent criteria here's the problem though with that there have been a lot of other coaches who have been voted into the hall of fame with a win percentage that's well below that bar as well so they've basically uh, grandfathered in some coaches that they they uh, wanted in, and for God knows what reason, they snubbed Howard Schnellenberger. I have been pretty vocal and written about this before, that to me it's shameful that the, the National Football Foundation, that's who runs the College Football Hall of Fame, did not induct Howard Schnellenberger while he was still alive, and now uh, sadly he's passed away and he wasn't put in the Hall of Fame they need to make an exception. They should have done it already. They haven't yet. Um, but I think it's really sad because he is a legendary football coach and he belongs in. And there's some other coaches, honestly, who are in the Hall of Fame who didn't accomplish anywhere near what he did. And the NFF needs to needs to fix that. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. And again, we are reaching near the end of this deal, I believe. So this is your last on one of your last chances to take advantage of it. One dollar a month for six months for a subscription to the athletic at theathletic.com/slash/theaudible. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.